Keywords in Play. You're listening to Keywords in Play, an interview series about game research supported by Critical Distance and the Digital Games Research Association. As a joint venture, Keywords in Play expands Critical Distance's commitment to innovative writing and research about games, while using a conversational style to bring new and diverse scholarship to a wider audience. Welcome back to Keywords in Play. This episode, I'm speaking with Sonia Fizik, a digital wanderer and ludic thinker who's currently working as an associate professor at Cologne Game Lab. She is working on her forthcoming book, Displaying Video Games, Media Aesthetic of Play, which presents her work on the concept of distance play and how it affects the experience of video games specifically. So, Sonia, I was thinking, when you say distance in relation to player video games, most people will think of, you know, online gaming and meeting with others or playing with friends from far away, which, you know, is an increasingly important thing nowadays. But this isn't exactly what you mean by this term. So can you start off with an example of your distance play concept? Yeah, right. First of all, thank you, Emily, and the whole crew for giving me the platform to talk about this project. It's very funny to kind of start from the end. And when I say the end, I mean that the framework of distance or distant play, also what I call display with a hyphen between distant play, it's all started to make sense to me in the final stages of working on that book. And I am right now in those final stages. So distance reflects a certain kind of paradox. And I love paradoxes. And usually video gaming is kind of synonymous with concepts such as interactivity, human action, choice, control, ergodicity, which is non-trivial effort. And in game studies, all those concepts were very important, especially in the first years when the discipline had been formed. And all of those concepts presuppose a certain kind of close merging with the object of play with a game. So we usually talk about immersion via action. And that's the twist, actually, uh, that I decided to kind of take. So what I want to show is that there's a diversity of delegated, automated, ambient, and otherwise distant play formats, experiences, and games, which are usually pushed to the edges of gameness. So at best, they're dubbed as not games. That's a kind of a term that has been also emerging in uh, game studies and uh, game design uh, circles, I suppose. Now, just to kind of illustrate it with an example of game genres, think about auto-battlers, which is a relatively new genre, which are not fully automatic, but uh, they're kind of playing themselves to a certain degree in the background. Or think about automated mods of all kinds, even walking simulators, which are, of course, not automated, but it has been argued that the player has so little to do in, in those. You can even think about cellular automata. Um, so there are different examples that work with that concept. So I'm looking at forms of engagements with video games and play formats, which require surprisingly little. I don't want to say that they require none whatsoever, but surprisingly little direct or close action from the human player. So that's how I would describe the distance and with that kind of paradox. That's really interesting because I think that's kind of, like you said, a kind of counterintuitive way of looking at video games because so much of how they're analyzed are along the lines of they're interactive, they enable, you know, player actions or player choices to affect the outcomes. 
Can you describe how automation manifests in those categories and kind of, I guess, how you became interested in them coming from a game studies perspective that's kind of like, oh, these aren't really games or like aren't good examples of games? Yeah, I mean, in fact, this is exactly how the project started. So it didn't start with the concept of distance. It didn't start from any kind of theoretical um, concepts. I actually stumbled upon uh, different kinds of games, which were very difficult to grasp from a game studies or media studies perspective. I remember I was puzzled a couple of years ago uh, with the so-called idle games that I mentioned already. Also with games or ludic phenomena such as David O'Reilly's Mountain, which is probably like the epitome of what a not game is. David O'Reilly's Mountain is more of a kind of a simulation of a mountain. You as a player, you you can uh, interact with the game at the beginning by answering questions, by drawing certain things. But then from then on, uh, you actually watch this mountain, which is generating, maybe a bit randomly, uh, generating different objects and so on and so forth. A couple of years ago, I saw it at an exhibition, which was taking place at the Cologne Game Lab, where I am working right now. But back then I visited this exhibition and the exhibition itself was also called Not Games, which was very interesting to me. Then I also stumbled upon such examples as a self-playing game, Dreeps. It's a mobile game. It's a game that is actually an alarm clock playing game. So you have this character which is traversing the world. You set up this game in a way and it plays itself parallel throughout the day and kind of accompanies you. And when you go to sleep, you put the game uh, literally and you put the character to sleep. There are many other examples that appear in that book and which are central to the concept of distance. One last of them that I usually bring up is Ian Cheng's artwork called Emissaries. It is an artwork. It's a life simulation. It's not a video game, but for some reason, maybe it's just rhetorics, but um, the artist called his piece of work self-playing video games or a video game that plays itself. So all those examples were uh, I was stumbling upon. And then I started digging deeper into the topics and then other examples and other phenomena emerged. And I was trying to find a new way to look at them and also find and develop a new language to describe them. And this is how certain concepts that I'm building upon actually found their place in the book. So just to give you an example uh, without um, talking too long about it, uh, I hope people will read the book at the end of the day. But each chapter actually focuses less on games, although those examples are there, but on play. And I give it a certain kind of name. So for instance, interpassive play. And then I look into the concept of interpassivity or ambient play. And then I look into the concept of games playing in the background and somehow accompanying us in different ways than the immersive and action oriented way. Um, There's also a chapter called automated play and interactive play and so on and so forth. I think my biggest playful gesture is to actually say interactive games as such do not exist. They're all interactive. So you're kind of arguing that like, even though there's these significant examples of like, you know, an idle game or dreams that you only really have to interact with once a day, there's kind of an element of this in every video game. Yes, that would be at the end of the day, the main take from it. Because those examples, of course, are quite extreme examples. And then one could say, okay, but uh, this is not really how um, most video games, especially the AAA video games, are working. That's the most difficult part, of course, but that's where I'm aiming at. I want to actually show how distance as a concept is actually ingrained in every video game, or to be even more like media theoretical, it is a component of computer-mediated play. So we try to be very close to this object of play, but of course we are actually, as human players, quite distant from it at the same time. 
there are different layers. And this object is also not an object. I think this is where I kind of end with when I say interactive play. We are also, as humans, played by this kind of ludic infrastructure. I end up calling all of this actually a ludic entanglement, and I end up decentering, in a way, the position of the human. I'm not saying that you don't act in video games. What I do at the end is I'm kind of repositioning the understanding of what an act is or what an action actually is and how much power do we actually have as players over computer-mediated play forms. It was really interesting to me kind of how you set up this argument for why it's important to consider this aspect of video games or like to broaden it like any form of technologically mediated play. You kind of draw on like the broader history of mechanical automation, so considering things like player pianos, and I thought that was really interesting and kind of unusual. I think a lot of game studies draws its lineage more to past forms of games like board games or sports or whatever. Could you kind of go into why you think it was important to consider those sorts of objects that aren't really games alongside a history of video games? What I'm interested in or, or what is actually crucial is this, um, you can say machine-mediated play. And there were different machines. Actually, a board game, a board is also a technology. So I guess that's looking kind of at the material side of things. But uh, player pianos and automata were fascinating to me because they allowed me to look at machine-mediated or computer-mediated play from a media archaeological perspective. So let me maybe give an example. Why player pianos, for instance? They were advertised back in end of 19th century, beginning of the 20th century with such slogans as easy to play, or anyone can play it. And these automatic or automated piano-like instruments, they suddenly allowed everyone, and by everyone, of course, I mean everyone who could actually afford them, uh, to play music. So all of a sudden, one of the most challenging instruments of play, and I think this is also where the twist lies, it is an instrument of play, although musical play. So suddenly this instrument was accessible to every player regardless of the skill. You had to interact with it. Um, It wasn't digital, so you had to either um, use a crank to kind of wind it up, or in case of player pianos, you would have to um, press pedals. And this is how they would work then. Now, think about the debates that are happening in game studies and in in game design or game industry. The debates of de-skilling video game players by implementing automated mechanics, bots, or difficulty adjusting to the individual player level, or... Think about the whole casual gaming debate, which is a bit older, right? So this, those resemblances are in a way striking. And these are now resemblances on the rhetoric level. There are many more. So um, a computer machine or a console with a controller is, of course, a different kind of play instrument than a piano, but one which until recently required a relatively high digital competence or digital literacy. So video game, at least that's the mainstream story, the the geek story, was not for everyone. But it is for everyone right now. So that's just one of the avenues that I'm actually taking. And automata fascinate me for, for yet different reasons. For instance, and that's an example again, which is probably known to a wide audience, chess playing automaton, uh, the so-called mechanical Turk. This was an 18th century attempt at machine thinking. It was a fraud at the end of the day, but it was an attempt to to kind of simulate a thinking process by devising a machine which would supposedly be able to play or, or perform intelligent cognitive actions and bodily actions in a way. The mechanical torque was a figure. 
playing with the with a human player. When I take this as an example, I think about such things as today's machine learning AI, also implemented in games. I think about the example of AlphaGo in the last years, the algorithm which has beaten a human player and this hasn't happened since chess and that's been quite a while. So I take automata and I kind of present them as this continuation of the dream of animating technology. So I don't want to make historical shortcuts, I'm not a historian, but I think it's astounding how continuous certain techno-cultural phenomena are. And this is where, uh, where I place automata or player pianos vis-a-vis uh, -vis video games. That's really interesting. That kind of makes me think the player piano is kind of this complicated and hard to consider. You know, it's not quite a recording of music, but it's also not quite an original performance either. There is a lot of behavior in video games that kind of don't quite fit into like completely free play, but also, you know, are not just kind of watching either. So I, th I think that's like a really good kind of point of reference for, you know, this kind of ambivalence that comes when things are partially automated or delegated to computers or other mechanical type things. Actually, that's the interesting thing about player pianos. These are or these were actually recordings at some point. So these were, I think, one of the first storage instruments for music before phonograph and, uh, and other technologies have appeared. These were actually performances that were faithfully recorded to a perforated paper roll. And that's another spooky dimension of it. If you think about distance, there's this phrase, this famous phrase by Albert Einstein, spookiness at a distance. It describes quantum entanglement, which means like two particles are, I don't know, light years apart and light is not fast enough to kind of uh, communicate between the two. And yet they're still entangled. I think about those performances, those recorded performances on perforated paper roll as this kind of spooky, distant play. You, you have the performer and then the performance act is suddenly decoupled from space and time and is happening at another space and time automatically. This is, of course, nothing spooky today for us because we have technologies that are doing exactly the same. We have audio recordings, video recordings, whatever we're doing right now for the podcast is also this kind of spookiness of, of distance. It's pre-recorded. It will be then posted uh, in another time and sp at another space. <laughs> yeah, it kind of also makes me think of Doom wads, or I guess Doom recordings, where it's kind of built in this capability to replay what someone does in a particular game session. You do kind of get like the slightly spooky feeling from, you know, if someone who is in the community, like as a high level player, one of them like passed away at some point, but all of their recordings were still available online. So you could still make your computer play Doom in the way that they did which is a little weird. That's a really great example. It's, I don't have it in my book, but I might actually, we might, we have to talk about it because that's, uh, that would be another interesting aspect, uh, at least in my understanding of distant play. Definitely. One of the most, let's call it spooky, <laughs> uh, playful moments for me was a session in front of everything. This game that is apparently allows you to be everything and to do everything in the game. It's a title by David O'Reilly as well. I didn't know that the game has this capacity to play itself or um, it seems like I'm not sure on a technological level it might be a simple loop but what happened to me was I was playing it and then at some point I put my game controller on the side and uh, not expecting it from the game I just saw all of a sudden that the game keeps playing after a few seconds and at first I thought it's just 
some kind of um, ambient act. That's what Alexander Galloway talks about when he says that those animated uh, characters or those animations that are kind of... So it's, something is moving there, but it's actually waiting for you to rejoin the game. But it wasn't this kind of ambient act. The game actually kept playing. So that was actually quite an unexpected moment for me. And um, it is a function in that game. So you can just watch it play itself. That's something that has stuck in my mind. And that's definitely one of my favorite examples. <laughs> yeah. Just how it, you know, not even like, oh, okay, I'm going to turn on, you know, the automation mode. Because that, I don't know, that's in, in some games, you know, you can kind of like fast forward or like do like kind of the automatic battle mode, but that it just kind of starts doing it without your permission as the player um, is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it just took over. That was back in Scotland, by the way. So it was a dark, probably quite rainy evening and I had a fireplace on and uh, the game was playing itself. And then I thought, this is actually very ironic because that reminds me again of television as a medium or of radio, which are ambient, which are very often happening in the background while we are doing something else, um, either sleeping or doing chores or anything. And video games were never looked at from that kind of perspective or they're not meant to be those kind of media that are ignored <laughs> so yeah that was a funny moment how do you kind of hope to extend or build upon um this idea of distance play or how do you hope that other potentially scholars or even game developers could expand on it yeah that's a hope um i mean the thing is the power of interpretation is unpredictable i can only wish that my work is kind of received by games and media scholars and students and um, practitioners, maybe. But uh, first of all, I hope that the book will be read, at least by a few of my friends and colleagues and students. <laughs> uh, my biggest hope is actually to challenge common narratives we tend to take for granted. And in this case, it's video games studies or media studies. And I want to propose a new media aesthetic of digital play. I don't know what people will do with it, but I'm actually quite curious how this different narrative or different story of what play is, not that it's the only different story. There are many people who have been, I think, thinking uh, a little bit along the same lines or similar lines. For instance, Darshan Ajamain and his concept of performativity. In many ways, it kind of speaks to my concept of distance, I guess. So I don't know. I don't know what people will do, but I hope that they will at least use some of the terms and maybe that will change the language of game studies a little bit. When it comes to game developers, I think that's a difficult one. There is, of course, a connection between theory and practice, but I don't think it's a one to, you know, it's not like you can all of a sudden apply certain theories. They do it anyway. So all those examples I, I am actually looking at were, of course, developed without any knowledge of any kind of interpretation through those theories. But I guess maybe if the book lands in the hands of a game developer, maybe they will kind of recognize those formats as something that is, um, is a game. So hopefully they will also have a wider understanding of what games and what play is. And I want to see more of those different weird strange ludic things uh, happening and how I expand on it. My next project in a way has to do with, uh, and that's a funny pun on, on, on where the podcast is actually then hanging, it has to do with critical distance towards digital gaming. And I want to look at the problem of sustainability, resource consumption, something that you might call green gaming 
and changing awareness of the gaming community about play consumption. So that's where I want to go. So it's another kind of critical distance towards a game as an object, but very different, of course, to where this project is heading towards. I think that's a great point to wrap up on. So thank you so much for talking with me. And I'm really excited to read your book when it comes out because I find all these topics very fascinating. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Keywords in Play. For more great ideas around games, check out criticaldistance.com or take a dive into the Digra archives at digra.io.